This is the Future of HR podcast, episode 54. Tell me more about you're all for diverse talent as long as they're good. Tell me more about what you mean by good. All these coded things like, I don't know if she's professional enough. I talk about this a lot in the book, gendered ageism. I've never been the right age. I'm either too young or too old. I'm either too experienced, not enough maturity, not enough executive presence, not enough gravitas, charisma, right? So all this coded language, ask people to unpack it. Because if I say to you, that was sexist, that was racist, that was homophobic, I am killing psychological safety. But if I can get you to explore and get you to unpack what you're saying, you probably will realize it's a feeling and it's not a fact. How can HR foster a diverse and inclusive culture of belonging? What common myths or beliefs are holding us back from transforming our workplaces? Hi, I'm your host, JP Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. Today, my guest is Mita Malik. Mita is a corporate change maker with a track record of transforming businesses. She's also the head of inclusion, equity, and impact at Carta. She co-hosts the popular podcast, Brown Table Talk with DC Marshall. She's a top voice on LinkedIn, and she has her first book, Reimagine Inclusion, Debunking 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace, coming out on October 3rd. Media's new book is an important one, not only for HR leaders to read, but for all leaders. In Reimagine Inclusion, Media is saying all the quiet parts out loud of what holds us back from making meaningful progress in this work. Her new book is smart, candid, authentic, and full of practical ideas on how to engage in conversations that have the potential to debunk common myths and create a more inclusive workplace. In my conversation with Mita, we discuss why she felt early in her career that she was chasing inclusion, why organizations must work to debunk 13 common myths about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, how to engage and respond to a leader who says, I'm all for diverse talent as long as they're good. Why she believes the best way to change the stereotypes in our heads is to expand our social circles. Why we should be reimagining the role and impact that chief diversity officers can have on an organization. And the question that chief diversity officers should ask the CEO before accepting a job offer and much more. Mito, welcome to the Future of HR podcast. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, JP. I'm excited for our conversation. Yeah, we're excited to talk with you and hear more about your awesome new book, your career. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I've been really thinking about this conversation for a while. Mm -hmm. So thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Um, And I was reading your book. And thanks again for the confidential preview. You know, my husband hasn't read it yet. So maybe it'll, he's lived it. He tells me he's lived it. So he hasn't read the whole thing yet. But thank you for taking the time to read it. I appreciate it. It was actually, it was a great book. And I know your husband will read the book. I believe that. But in the introduction to your book, you talked about how throughout most of your career, you felt like you were chasing inclusion. And just talk to us more about what that means and why you felt that way. Because I thought that was such a really profound statement. Well, I'll start our conversation by invoking Taylor Swift, who I hear is running the economy along with Beyonce and Barbie. 
my daughter is obsessed with Taylor Swift. She's eight. And there's a song called Antihero. And there's a line in the song that says, hi, it's me. I'm the problem. It's me. And I felt that way, JP, for a lot of my early career. I actually go back and look that I job hopped a lot. Like I had stints like one year, year and a half, two years. And I thought to myself, huh. Because what I didn't recognize is I was entering a world of work that wasn't built for someone who looked like me. And then, of course, I had a lot of, as I talk about on my podcast, Roundtable Talk with D.C. Marshall, a lot of things, a lot of gifts my Indian immigrant parents gave me that didn't serve me well in corporate America from a cultural upbringing perspective. And so I have felt that I've been chasing inclusion for most of my life as a young girl who was bullied in classrooms and schoolyards, didn't anticipate that those bullies would show up in conference rooms and boardrooms. And I think many people, and I talk about this in the book as as you've been reading it, is we all can, we all talk about inclusion, but I thought to myself, what have we actually talked about what it's like to feel like we don't belong? What if it's like, what if, what can we do to really recall a, a memory where we were excluded either from a childhood situation or in the workplace? And it's terrible. It's painful, right? And so you start to think about, you actually wouldn't want that to be anyone's experience, particularly if you're leading people. And so if we can hold on to that feeling of what it feels like to not belong, to not have a seat at the table, to be excluded, then then you think, gosh, I don't want to be that leader at all. Absolutely. And it's such a vulnerable but important truth that you're talking about that we've all probably felt, right? If we were playing kickball and we're the last chosen, yes. we're not chosen at all. So I, I'm glad that you wrote this book and I appreciate you talking about that. And it's interesting you've been reflecting on making those choices. And when you were leaving some of those companies in the shorter stints, was it because you felt like, hey, I just didn't fit in? The culture wasn't accepting me? Well, I've written about this publicly for Fast Company, so it's there. I didn't include it overtly in the book, but one of the first assignments I was very excited about in corporate America, I had a boss who refused to call me by my name. And so taking a step back, my full name is Madhumita Malik. For a number of reasons, I shortened it to Mita Malik. And when I left graduate school, I thought I'm going to reclaim my name. So I joined this company as Madhumita Malik. He couldn't pronounce Madhumita, which was fine. I offered that you can call me Mita. He decided instead, JP, to call me Muhammad and thought that was funny and renamed me Muhammad. And so for, I want to say, I'm embarrassed to admit it was probably close to six months or longer where I responded to Muhammad. Muhammad, go get the sales samples. Muhammad, the agency's here. Go pick him up from reception and bring him into the conference. Or Muhammad, are you coming to lunch with us? You know, it was really interesting, GP. I go back to that moment and I can be upset at that individual, which I am. And I have forgiven and I've moved forward. But now I think where we're all his peers. That's what I actually think. That's what's happening in our classrooms and our schoolyards and our communities. That's what's happening in our organizations is that too many of us are bystanders just watching these things happen and we're not standing up for each other. And that's actually, I'm more upset with his peers than him now to think you all saw this happen to me for months and no one said anything and you thought it was funny. And so that is one of a number of experiences that I have had where maybe I would have stayed there longer, but I was like, I, I didn't also feel I was so junior I didn't feel like I had the power or the privilege to actually stand up, speak up for myself without repercussion. Why, why are you being so sensitive? It's funny. I'm just going to call. Why? We'll call you Muhammad, right? So even when I did, there was this like dismissal. And so those were many of the reasons. 
passed up for promotion, told I was killing it. Every time it was my turn, I say, oh, not your turn yet. Watching other people with less experience be promoted. So probably a myriad of reasons. Well, thanks for sharing that. And that is honestly just a horrific story that someone would believe that's okay to say that, you know, just anyone ever in the workplace to call someone that name, you know, to, to rename the person insane. without their permission. Yeah. Yes. I'm really in shock, but I guess I'm not surprised because there's some people who just don't understand. Yes. And um, that's an important story though, because I think sometimes people, well, that doesn't happen anymore, right? That was a long time ago that people did those things, right? But it's happening today happening. in our workplaces, in our schools, yes. in our organizations, and it's really important. And I'm guessing, but I want to ask, why did you decide to write Reimagine Inclusion and why did you focus on the common myths related to inclusion? So I wrote the book. I started writing it four years ago. I have a lot of career journals. So for listeners, I know many of you journal, but I have career journals. I actually write down things that I've experienced in my career that are painful to help me process or highs or just moments I want to remember. So I went back to those journals to write the book. But you know, JP, I got a lot of rejections for the book. I had editors say to me, come back to me when she has a book more like Sheryl Sandberg. There's a lot of people who look like Mita writing books like this. Mita's writing is magical. It pops off the page, but she has no followers. Like nobody's going to buy the book. And so people are like, how is she rolling these things off of her tongue? Does she? And yeah, you know what? I remember all of them because just like we have rainy day folders for the really down days we have, I'm sure many of you do this. You keep the love notes people send you so you can remember that you're amazing. I have a rejections folder. So my agent, I probably have over 50 rejections and I have all those. I go back and read them, not to make myself feel bad, but to be like, wow, you've come so far. So there are a lot of inequities in publishing. I'm really happy to, to be with Wiley for this book. But I wrote it because there's a lot of great books right now on leadership and inclusion. But I want to say the quiet parts out loud. Let's talk about the stories, the myths we hold on to, the things we might share with our kids at bedtime, you know, the stories and myths. You're like, okay, but this is actually not true. And it's holding us back for making meaningful progress in the workplace. It's holding us back. Again, a great story. And I think everyone probably has a book inside them. Everyone's got one yes. book. I believe that's true. But getting it published is very hard. And I think because if I read the manuscript and when I read the book, I was like, this is a really smart take. Like, I'm oh, intrigued. Well, thank you. I, I want to hear about the myths. I dove right in and I was like, this is true. Yes. It just grabbed me. So it just shows you publishers are focused on where it's going to sit on the bookshelf, yes. right? Do you have enough followers? And it's an economic activity. And even there, you faced, you know, some discrimination, frankly, right? And just that you had an uphill climb because you weren't established. And so kudos to you for getting this out Thank and you. for Wiley putting this out. And um, obviously, a lot of your followers now find this fascinating and will read the book. But let's talk about the 13 myths. Yeah. And we don't have time to go through all 13. Uh, but if your husband wants to call me, I'm happy to have a conversation. <laughs> we can give him, him the cliff notes. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> but you do cover 13 myths that need to be addressed. And I wonder, which myths do you think are most common or also causing the most damage to our organization? Now you're asking me to pick between my two kids. You know when your kids do that? Who do you like more, mom? So I'll pick two. They're all applicable. And oh, by the way, people ask why 13. It's my lucky number. So let's not overthink it. I just love 13. Maybe there'll be another 13 in the next book. I'm all for diverse talent as long as they're good. That's myth four. I'm all for diverse talent as long as they're good. And, and a lot of, as you read in Reimagined Inclusion, JP, I ask people to self-reflect on the opposite. Would we ever say I'm all for non-diverse talent as long as they're good? 
And one of the stories I share are examples. Let's say I work for you and you're the CEO and you have appointed me to your executive team to lead a troubled part of the business. And for all, and I'm the first woman of color on the exec team. And for all the reasons, it just didn't work out for you, for the company, for me, I moved on. Are you now more or less reluctant to hire a woman of color if it was the first? Now let's actually pick the, another scenario where it's a white man. Same situation. He joins your exec team. You hire him to lead a trouble part of the business. For all the reasons it doesn't work out for you, him, the company, he moves on. Are you more or less reluctant to hire a white man now to lead anything in your company or sit on your exec team? And so I do think the work that needs to be done is really asking people open-ended questions and asking them to think about the reverse. And if that is true, why is it that you automatically assume that opening up the pipeline and having diversity representation when you're reviewing candidates is lowering the bar? And that's likely because not you, but you in general have not met a lot of women of color and you don't know a lot of women of color. So unfortunately, I become the stereotype of what all women of color represent. It's really true. And in that situation, you're like, well, you know, there were other things. There's reasons why it didn't yes. work out. You make the excuse, right? And, and this is the one I actually underlined myself to ask you about, because for me, this is the one that I hear the most in mm -hmm. HR or leaders say or CEOs say, I'm all for diversity as long as they're good. And I was like, isn't all talent supposed to be good? And why are we asking this question? I mean, it's a, it's a silly question. Now, you've made a much better flip on it than I probably did. But what should HR leaders, talent acquisition leaders, say to leaders when they hear that? Is that how you would tackle it? Or are there other strategies you would get into? Tell me more about you're all for diverse talent as long as they're good. Tell me more about what you mean by good. What in Mita's track record of experience, resume background, is causing you pause or questions? We talk about this on our podcast, Brown Table Talk, facts versus feelings. Facts versus feelings. We're all human. We have feelings. I'm not sure if I would, this is true story, JP, I talk about this in my podcast. Someone told me, I'm not sure if they'd take a, they would roll the dice on me, the CEO said. They would roll the dice or take a bet on me. I was like, what? You know, all these coded things like, I don't know if she's professional enough. I talk about this a lot in the book, gendered ageism. I've never been the right age. I'm either too young or too old. I'm either too experience, not enough maturity, not enough executive presence, not enough gravitas, charisma, right? So all this coded language, ask people to unpack it. Because if you can, because if I say to you, that was sexist, that was racist, that was homophobic, I am killing psychological safety. But if I can get you to explore and get you to unpack what you're saying, you probably will realize it's a feeling and it's not a fact. Or maybe it is a fact. You can actually factually say, I wouldn't put Mita in front of a customer because she has no sales experience, right? And you might actually say, okay, that's like 90% true. All right. But the question also is, if Mito was a white man and had no sales experience, would you be more willing to take a bet on him? And particularly, as you know, in the business world and corporate, relationships matter a lot and friendships. And so then we have different standards for different people on what we will allow and not allow. Yeah, that's really true. And especially that situation where you say, well, maybe they both don't have that sales experience, right? And so yeah. you kind of unpack it and say, well, why were you taking a chance on this person? Why? Well, there's another reason. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is excuses, but the facts versus feelings is such a good reframe in your own mind before you say it and then try to just draw that out. That's Absolutely. really good advice to say, hey, let's 
just talk more about the candidate. Like what's giving you pause? I love that. And I think you got some great questions there because I think talent acquisition leaders and HR leaders are on the front lines of this every day. They are, absolutely. You know, we are getting diverse candidate slates. You know, we're working really hard. And that, that's a metric that I think every TA leader is, yep, we had a diverse candidate slate. They had one interview. <laughs> Did you have one or two? And it sort of dies there a lot of times, right? Because we get the coded language of, I'm not sure they have enough experience or they're, I'm not sure I take the bet. And instead of us pushing, we accept those answers. And so I think this is really, really helpful to think through. Absolutely. So thank you, Nita, for that. There's another myth that's top on your list. Well, we could talk about myth four forever. Let's move on to right. six. Why are you asking for a raise? Your husband makes more than enough money. I had held on to the story for years. And when I finally, I tested it on LinkedIn and social media and got some like wow responses. And then I wrote it and I've been sharing it with a select group, including yourself. And I have been floored by so many women who are like, this has been my experience. And I think a lot of men in my life who were like, wow, like, I can't believe these things are said. And so the myth I'm trying to unpack here is that white women and women of color don't negotiate. We often do negotiate and we are gaslit, minimized and dismissed. And so I really want leaders to think about all of us. What is our cultural relationship to money? Because it shows up in the workplace. Are you triggered when I ask for a raise or my compensation to be reviewed? And why are you triggered? And if my husband comes and asks for a raise, he's probably, oh, the fatherhood premium in play, right? He's more committed. He's more stable. He's more ambitious. The more kids we have together. And me, I'm a disheveled mess. And I'm likely going to get paid less. But one of the stories I share, which the first time I said it out loud to a girlfriend, I was sort of floored by her response. So I went to a leadership offsite. This is years ago. I'm up for a pay increase. And I'm somebody who likes my jewelry. I spend money on jewelry. And my husband says, well, in this case, he spent the money on me, my engagement ring, my wedding ring. I did not wear it. And he said, well, why aren't you wearing your ring? And I said, I'm not going to give them any reason to pay me less. And so a girlfriend says to me, oh, yes, we don't wear any of our nice things to work. Because when we do, people start to have ideas about how much they should pay us. Mita carries a Birkin bag. You know, she doesn't need the raise. You don't need to give Mita a retention bonus. She's the primary breadwinner. She's not going anywhere. Oh, you're giving Mita 5%? Give her 3%. Her husband's in sales. He's killing it. He got a big commission. The, the stories I have heard over the years behind closed doors and the judgments we make about women and how much we should value and pay them, it's astounding, JP. It's astounding. And so this one I've been, it was the first time I say the quiet parts out loud. This one was I was like, I'm going to write it. I'm going to do it. And I've been really floored by the responses from people. Yeah. And I'm so glad you did because I've heard this one and been in a competition meeting when someone said something to this effect. And I just, I stopped them and just said, hey, that's not a factor in someone's compensation. Thank you. Yeah. Well, it I just have billion. to say. It could be a billionaire, people, but I was like, well, what are you doing? Anyone listening, just rewind what JP said. That's the, this. How does this factor into the person's compensation and the work they do? How does this I was, factor? I was floored. I was just floored and thinking like, well, because my wife stays at home, should I make now make more money than other people because we've chosen that lifestyle and she's chosen to be with the kid? You know, so it is so good you unpack this one because I think you're right. Women, and there's a lot written on this and I'm not a woman, so I have never had been in that situation, but we read a lot about not advocating for themselves, going for the raise, right? But that's what you hear mostly about that. You don't hear about this one where it's the quiet internal raise mm -hmm. that's happening and it's because of bias, mm -hmm. right? 
So I, I think it's really important you bring that up. And I think HR leaders need to be watching out for this because, you know, women, um, I think you should look good. You should wear jewelry. You should wear Birkin bag. And that should be great. You should wear what you want to wear to work. Yes. That has no, that has no bearing how much I'm going to pay you. But you know, it's so double just, binds you know. for women. I love Carta. I work there, but don't send me another hoodie. I always joke. I don't have the privilege to wear hoodies and jeans and present like a Mark Zuckerberg or, you know, Steve Jobs, who famously had his black turtleneck. I just don't. Right. And so there's the double bind of like the appearance and how much we're judged on that and that how it shows up in pay. And a big piece of the conversation around inclusion is around pay. Pay me what I'm worth and pay me for the value I'm bringing to the organization. Well, I think ultimately, if we want inclusive culture, then we should pay women and men the same for the same job, Absolutely. right? The same level. Pay parity really is important. The other thing you talked about in the book that I think people should, to be fair, I want more insight into this question because I think it is one that's challenging. As a white male, this is something I want to make sure that I want to expand my social circles, mm -hmm. right? I want to make sure I have a diverse relationships and my children having diverse relationships, right? But you said in the book, the only way to change stereotypes in our heads is to expand our social circles. This is easier said than done for some people, right? And some, depending on what department you work in or organization, right? You're all those different things. So how do we do this and do it better? Why is it important, JP? I fundamentally believe that we're doing this work backwards. We're chasing inclusion at our boardroom tables, at our conference room tables. It starts at our kitchen room tables. It starts in our neighborhood and communities. If I have, I'll again, use my own community as an example. If I have very to little to no exposure to Indian individuals, if everything I've ever seen is movies and film and media, which is, can be incredibly dangerous, and then now I'm walking into my workplace, how am I not bringing that stereotype with me? We're all chasing diversity of representation. We're all chasing inclusive cultures. I could be working for you, JP. The team can be quite diverse. The question you should be asking is whether I'm equipped to lead it. That's the question you should be asking. And so this work starts at home. And so, yes, it is very easy for me to say that you should have relationships with individuals with different lived experiences. Easier said than done. I'll never forget talking to a leader in Vermont who screamed at me and said, what do you want me to do? Move? Do you want me to move? Because for those in the U.S. listening, you know that Vermont is one of the whitest states in our country. But gosh, the global pandemic has proven that you can meet anyone anywhere. How did you and I meet? Off of LinkedIn and through our mutual friend Mel connecting us. So if you are intentional about it, you can be intentional at work through employee resource groups. You can be intentional if you have the money and you are vacationing and you're leaving your hometown state, thinking about where you go, thinking about where you buy from, who you buy from, either online. Like I have built relationships with many women of color founders, buying products and leaving messages and they're responding. And so it is like building any relationship. It's authentic. You get to know each other just as people. And then as you get to know about their experiences, you get to learn things that you haven't experienced in your life and you get to be more empathetic as a result. I think it's such important advice for us because we get a little bit stuck in our circles, our social circles, right? We've got certain friends, people we're comfortable with, and that makes sense. But what I've also found for me, and we have a dog, and so we walk the dog right, a lot. Yes. And so we meet the neighbors, That's you know, great. other people walking dogs, yeah. or people are out and we say hi. Because a lot of people drive into their house and you never see them again. Yeah. And so it's, the dog has been very helpful to break some of that down. But I agree, there's really no excuse 
in this. And if you work in an organization, there are people who are different than you in terms of your diverse background, ethnic background, that have different perspectives and experiences. And so you can build those relationships. They're right there for you. You just have to go out and do it. Absolutely. And like you build any relationship that's important to you, you do it over time. It doesn't happen overnight. Exactly. Exactly. The other thing I want to talk to you about, because just a unique position you have, obviously the book, but being a chief diversity officer, there was a Wall Street Journal article recently. Mm-hmm. I know you saw it because yes. this is your area, called The Rise and Fall of the Chief Diversity Officer. And they really detailed that chief diversity officers have been more vulnerable to layoffs than other people in the HR department, experiencing 40% higher turnover. What's your take on the current state of diversity, inclusion, equity, and belonging in our workplaces? A huge backlash that is here to stay. I'm going to say it out loud. I say the quiet parts out loud, GP. Everyone's like, yeah, it's here to stay. Why is that? Because the demographics of the U.S. have changed quickly. Currently, I believe around 40% of individuals identify as non-white. In the next 10 to 15, 20 years, that'll be closer to 50 P&G tells us that there's over $5 trillion of spending power with the multicultural consumer, $5 trillion of spending power. That does then account for the LGBTQ plus community, individuals with disabilities, veterans. Think about all the dimensions of diversity. And so anyone who says to me, inclusion is a driver of the business. If you tell me there's no growth to be had, you're not looking in the right places. You're not thinking about who you should be serving and, and authentically and with purpose. And so it is a sad It makes me really sad that we're in this place as a country, but I also know that what gets the most clicks on social media are extreme viewpoints. And I think that when we are scared of the unknown, it's easy to other things. It's easy to say political, apolitical, woke, anti-woke, culture wars. And one of the things when I counsel leaders, if they come to me and they say, oh, this is really political, I'm not sure if I should talk about it. And I will say, well, isn't politics through the lens of privilege? Isn't it through the lens of privilege that I can deem something political? So I can say something political is anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, anti-LGBTQ legislation, Black Lives Matter, xenophobia. I can go on and on on historically marginalized communities who are being hurt. And it's life and death. It's not for them political. It is life and death. It's human rights. And so if people could think about it from that way, but again, it goes back to if you actually knew someone from that community, not just one, but many, and you actually were like, wow, you then start to care on a human level. It's no longer about clickbait headlines. It's like, no, this is important. It's important for me to stand up and so show support. I also think with the overturning of affirmative action, the EEOC is saying technically right now there is no impact to workplaces, but it's the fear. That's showing up. It's the fear that's trickling down. What about chief diversity officers? Let's talk more about them because it's such an important role. What are the table stakes to make this role a success in the organization? Because we get it wrong so often, right? Here's the thing. I've interviewed for many CDO roles. Some I haven't taken and some I have clearly. I'm at Carden now, but you have to be upfront. So if you're a CEO and you're looking to hire a CDO, are you going to head into a crisis? Are you coming out of a crisis? Why do you need this person? Why not? And also staffing and resourcing it appropriately. You're going to hire me to be a chief diversity officer and sit in your exec team and that's it? No budget, no people, nothing? And to your point on why these roles are right now easily being eliminated is because there has to be a reimagining of this role and this work that 
it has to be seen as inclusion's a driver of the business. So if I think about the pillars that I focus on, chief diversity officers working with CHRO and heads of talent, right? Really thinking about the workforce, first pillar. Are we representing the communities in which we operate? Retention, promotion, sponsorship, all of that. The second is around products and services. Who are we ignoring and why? How are our products and services showing up the market? CDO should have a spot there. Supplier diversity. I've worked for many a Fortune 500 company, JP. We write the same checks to the same people. Why? Just like we have a diverse slate for candidates, we should have a diverse slate for suppliers. And we should think about our role in the ecosystem and how, as an organization, we can be someone's first customer. I love to say that. Like, if I'm at, at Carta, it's like, maybe someone's first customer. That can be game-changing for them. It can be game-changing. And the second is around values. This idea of culture wars, this idea of, this is, this is social justice. We're not talking about politics at work. Guess what? We, even, we have a generation coming into the workplace, already in the workplace, Gen Z. And this is, of course, multi-generational. People will vote with their wallets, and people want to work for companies that align with their values. And right now, this will go on forever. Right now, it seems like employers have the power. It'll go back to the employees. Companies like Coinbase and Basecamp, who clearly have said, we don't want to talk about politics. We want to talk about social justice. We're not doing that at work. Okay, they're over here. Then you've got Ben and Jerry, Patagonia. There'll be a bifurcation in the market, and people will go and work for employees that match their values. Very simple. I'm curious, because you have done a lot of interviewing for chief diversity officers. What questions would you ask the CEO or the CHRO before you take that job? Are there any, things, any tips for people out there who might be interviewing? Yeah, it's a great question. How coachable are you on a scale of one to five? Do you want to be coached? I always joke. I was like, I can't change my husband, brother, mother. I'm not in the business of changing people. But in this role, you're an advisor to execs. Tell me the things you haven't told anyone else. What keeps you up at night? What are you worried about? Sometimes there's a crisis in the news and then you know about it, but is there something that I need to be wary about? I always ask for budget, team members, impact. What is their vision? What are the top three things they want this person to achieve in the next year? And my advice is to get the role, get the offer, and then ask for more interviews. So you're in the driver's seat once you get the offer. Get the offer and then say, I'd like to meet with I didn't get to meet with general counsel. I didn't get to meet with the head of sales. I'd love to meet the person running this part of engineering. And likely, because they want you, they're going to give you all these interviews. And then you can start asking the questions about what it's like to really work there. What about HR leaders? How can they use the ideas in your book to build a more inclusive culture and organization? What are some tips and things they should be thinking about? I think I'm going to go back to the number one principle. What is inclusion? What is inclusion? To me, it means if I feel included again, working for JP, I feel valued, my voice matters, my contributions matter, I'm recognized, and this is the place I want to be. And just to remind people, there's no better retention tool than inclusion. Not a free meditation app, not a ping pong table, not the pizza party, not this. Like, let us go back to the basics. And if I feel included on JP's team, guess what? Someone can come and offer me $20,000 more. It's really unlikely that I'm going to move. Maybe for 100000 JP, I might do it. But 20000 like seriously. And a hoodie. And a hoodie, and a hoodie, and a hoodie. And it's like, I've been chasing that all my life. So to feel like, wow, 
Because why do we work? We want to make a difference. We want to make impact. I want to feel like I matter at the company. I matter on your team. And that is like the number one thing HR leaders need to help business leaders unlock, obviously for HR as a function, but also how people should be role modeling. One of the tips I will give anyone listening, and I talk about this in Reimagine Inclusion, is check your calendars for tomorrow. Who's invited to meetings and why? And who do you leave off and why? And I feel like there's a lot of rhetoric in the marketplace. If you have over seven people in a meeting, it's less productive. Okay, but why can't I present my own work? JP, I don't understand. Throughout my career, it's like there were so many moments where I couldn't present what I did and someone else did it. And guess what? I don't have to fly to London now to present. I can just hop on Zoom and I don't need to stay for the whole meeting. But imagine how that makes me feel if JP invites me to his exec, exec team. Well, no, Mina, you should present it. Come in. Come in for like 15 minutes. Send the pre-read. Come present. I want you to hear the feedback live. Versus JP says, oh, I'll present for you. Or I'll send it to you. I'll send it for you to the board. Hey, what? Well, that, I think that's cultural, right? Some cultures, there's a gate and a velvet rope of who gets to be in that meeting. And there's and that says a lot about the culture. I mean, I always like to, the question I like to ask is, you know, instead of tell me about your culture, which I think is just the worst question you can ask because yes. it's just so generic, I'd say, can you tell me about a recent decision mm-hmm. or action a company took that aligns with your cultural values? I love that. And speaks to your culture. Because it, you have to get more specific. Telling me everyone's collaborative, inclusive, we can all say that. But when you start to say, well, like, can I present my own work to the CEO? That's interesting, right? We have some more data points around what kind of culture that's going to be. And if you feel like that's going to be a place you'd be successful. Absolutely. The last thing I'll say to HR leaders listening is remind everyone your employees are your forgotten consumer. We spent so much time trying to figure out who we're going to sell, how much to and why. I tell you right now, if there was a negative Amazon review, I would, I would end this podcast and go fi- fix it, right? A customer review that's negative on, oh my God, right? But we don't treat our exit interviews the same way. We're so quick to push the social media message, the PR message. Have we talked to our employees about how they're feeling? And they can be, you know, either setting tiny fires in the organization or be our fiercest and most loyal advocates. And so that is a really huge role of HR to shape that. Let's start with our employees first and start internally before we run to the external piece. Because once you once you have an amazing culture, people can feel it right? You don't need to be buying ads in social media. You don't need to be like worried about the glass door reviews because you've taken care of your employees. They're going to be your best referral. The last question for you, what's one word or phrase that you believe will define the future of HR over the next five to 10 years? Inclusive. There it is, inclusive. Well, Mita, I hope that we continue to be more inclusive. We see more belonging. I also hope that not only that your husband reads the book, <laughs> but thousands and thousands of people oh, read this book so because Reimagining Inclusion is a terrific book. And this has been an incredible conversation. I have learned a lot. So thank you for being here today and getting to know you. Thank you so much. Please go check out the book. It's available on Amazon and your local bookstores. Appreciate you, JP. Go. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Future of HR podcast. Thanks again to Mita for sharing her stories and insights on how we can debunk the common myths related to diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. 
And if you enjoyed this episode of Future of HR, be sure to subscribe and share our podcast with at least one other person. This really helps us grow the podcast and helps with our mission of inspiring the next generation of HR leaders. We'll be back next week with Dean Carter, Chief People and Purpose Officer at Guild. Before Dean joined Guild, he was also the global leader for people and culture at Patagonia. In my conversation with Dean, we discuss how he's aligned his career to finding purpose-driven organizations, how he's rethinking HR Guild, and why he's building a community for CHROs. You won't want to miss this conversation with Dean. Thanks again for listening to the future of HR and being part of our community.